0: Thanks, Phil, and good morning, everyone. Welcome here in the sanctuary and also across the street in the chapel and also online. Honored that you'd worship with us this morning. We're finishing, actually, our series in Ephesians this morning, and so please join me. Take a moment, pray together, and then look at Ephesians chapter 6. Father, we're grateful uh, for the privilege of gathering within these walls to listen for your voice this morning. We trust and pray and ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. And that we would be responsive to your revelation, particularly asking that you would shape us individually and as a community to shine with greater clarity. In order that the light of Christ would shine through us, bringing hope to our city and our nation and our world. Thank you, Father. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, this passage is about spiritual warfare and uh, demon possession and oppression and that kind of thing. And often, when this topic is approached, the focus becomes uh, this kind of overt sense of oppression. In other words, we talk about exorcisms and people rolling on the floor and foaming at the mouth and seeing things and casting demons out of houses and all that stuff. All true and appropriate, but as I prayed about how to present this to you this morning... I wanna address this from a very different perspective because not only is the realm of the demonic presenting in those overt ways, but also often in covert ways. And it's the covert ways to which our congregation is particularly prone, I think, and, and vulnerable. And so for that reason, I begin with this quote uh, from a book about leadership, The Power of Positive Leadership, but it's really not a book just for people who would self-identify as leaders. It's really for anyone. This is a very good quote. Listen to this. Your most important job, this is you. What's your most important job? This is it. Your most important job is to drive culture. Do you realize that? Every one of you in the room are creating a culture. You must create a positive culture because culture drives expectations and beliefs. Expectations and belief drive behavior. Behavior drives habits, and habits create the future. The future, in other words, comes by virtue of the culture you create. It all starts with the culture that you create, and uh, so all of us in the room are culture creators. And if you're here saying, "I'm look, I'm single. I'm the bottom of the organizational chart at my work. I don't have any kids. I don't have a spouse. I don't create culture. You still create culture, because the very first culture all of us must create is a culture of our own human heart and soul. Does this make sense? Every one of us is creating a culture. Culture of the soul, culture of relationships, culture in the neighborhood, culture in the family, culture at the, culture at the workplace, culture at Amazon, culture at Starbucks, culture at Boeing, culture in, in the medical office, culture in the classroom, culture everywhere. You are creating culture at your job. And, and it's just creating a culture that is where the battle takes place. Because to create a culture uh, requires from you intentionality that you may or may not yet have, but let's pretend for a minute that you do have intentionality. And you're like this, I want to create a culture of hope and generosity and justice and truth-telling and forgiveness. I want to be the friends of Christ. If you do that, understand Satan, this devil, we'll talk about in a minute, will contest that. In other words, that's what the whole book of Ephesians is about. You are filled with Christ. That's chapters one through three. You have all the resources you need to live the Christian life. Therefore, uh, chapters four and five, walk in a way that is becoming of this new identity. In other words, live like you're filled with Jesus. As people of hope and justice and mercy and life, live that way. But know this, chapter six, if you intend to live As a person displaying the character of Christ, every step you take toward displaying Christ is going to be contested. That's what we're talking about this morning is this contest. So, some of you in the room have encountered this before where you've been confronted either by the Holy Spirit internally or externally a voice. You're doing something and, and then somebody says to you, hey, listen, you got, come on, wake up, you're better than that. Uh, Your coach said it to you. When you're playing football, you missed a route, right? You said it yourself when you woke up one morning and realized you're drinking too much. Uh, Your band director said it to you when you, uh, you were messing around during practice, you know, you're playing the drums and joking with other drummers in the back, it's the marching band, and then when it comes time to do the thing, you didn't do the thing because you weren't paying attention. It's purely hypothetical, of course, no one would ever, you know, <laughs> and then the band director goes, Richard, stop it, you're better than that. Like, you're, come on, you're, you're here, but you could be here. That's what this text is about. Like, how do we move? And here's the problem for all of us in the room this morning. We all know that we're made for this life of joy and justice and mercy and hospitality. We all know it, and yet we don't manage to find it. Or we find it for a moment, and then it's swept away in this avalanche of daily living, and we wonder what happened. I left church on Sunday, intending to live differently, and by Sunday night, I'm arguing with my spouse, drinking too much again, whatever it is. like, Like, my intent is just swept away. How does that happen? That's what we're talking about this morning. So... Paul wrote the letter this way, if you sit and receive these resources of Christ, this new identity, chapters 1 through 3, and then seek to walk in a way worthy of that identity, know that your intention to walk in a manner worthy of your new identity will, will be contested by an enemy, intent on subverting, delaying undermining, frustrating, negating your effectiveness. So how do we then, like, press through and keep growing? How do we do that? One sentence offers guidance for doing this. And the one sentence is the outline. The outline is one sentence. I'm going to read, this is the outline. One, what God wants, two, is always contested, three, with the result that we can be strengthened and victorious. So let me just read the sentence again. What God wants is always contested with the result that we can be strengthened and victorious. So let's look at those three pieces of a sentence this morning so that we can learn, you know, how to keep going. Uh, First of all, what does God want? Well, in this text, in Ephesians, kind of the end of the book articulates what God wants. Paul prays, beginning in verse 19, that he would be bold. So God wants us to, he wants courage in our lives and boldness. And then uh, he, he goes on, and at the end, in verse 23, he prays for peace and grace and incorruptible love. So boldness, grace, peace, incorruptible love. I could unpack each of those for you, but I'm going to summarize it this way. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, Speaking to his disciples, this is what God wants. He says, hey, I've come, I, Christ, have come, that you might have what? Does anyone know? Life. That word life, not bios, biology. That word life, zoe, spiritual life. I've come that your spirit might be animated, renewed, filled with nothing less than the life of God, so that you now are living a life not of adequacy, but a life of abundance, enough to serve and bless others. So God's desire from the very beginning has been humanity living lives of divine fullness. You're filled with the life of God. You're making the invisible God visible through displaying God's character so that justice and mercy and hope and joy and service and generosity and purity and peace are kind of coursing through you. That's God's goal. And God articulates it different ways in different places in the Bible, but it's always the same thing. God says to Abraham, I'm gonna bless you, why? So that you can be a blessing. God says to the nation of Israel, Deuteronomy 28, you will be blessed and then by virtue of being a blessing, you'll shine as light and you'll bless others. Jesus, Matthew 5, he's speaking to the disciples, what does he say? You are the light of the world, let your light shine. You are made to bless the world. God speaks to the church in Acts. Acts chapter 1. He doesn't, he, Jesus says, look, I'm leaving, but when I leave, you'll receive power. And he, this is, he doesn't say, you're going to go and witness. He says, you will be my witnesses. You will you're a noun. You are a witness. Like, your life is like a walking advertisement of the character of God. By the way, for better and worse. Right? People are deciding what God is like. By virtue of who you are. You are a witness. And by the way, parentheses here. If you want to understand this a little bit, go watch this movie about Mr. Rogers. Has anyone seen this in here? Raise your hand if you've seen this movie. Some of you, I confess to you at the outset, I, haven't, I never watched one show ever in my life, Mr. Rogers. His voice was annoying. Uh, it, it's like, really, are you kidding me? This guy, this is... He's fake. He's syrupy. There, I can't stand that. It's, whatever. Then I went and watched the movie, and like I'm sobbing, and here's why. This guy understood his calling and lived it. That's it. And his calling was to treat children, by the way, with dignity. And, and say this, every child matters. I'm digressing. My point in the moment is to say, for him, for him, He lived into his calling as a witness. He was a pastor, like ordained Presbyterian minister, lived into his calling as a witness. That's all of us. We're called to live into our calling. That's why we gather together in in small groups here. That's why we commit to studying the Bible. That's why I read and study ethics. I want us collectively to shine as light in a dark culture, to represent nothing less than, then the character of God, when we pray this prayer, may your kingdom come, may your will be done, what we're praying is, God, so shape us that we represent your heart. God, we're here, but to look fully like you, we kind of have to move the ball down the field, right? We, we, like, we have to. So, if we're doing this properly, our life will be a life of conscious movement. I'm growing. And I know the name how. And so, for example, then, as a pastor, I can tell you over the course of, you know, 35 years what this looks like. A man confesses his infidelity uh, to his wife, and they work together to rebuild their marriage. That's movement. A woman confesses that her loneliness has led to a porn addiction. She confesses to her husband, and they, and they move. They deal with it. A mom whose edges are frayed finds support, gets help. She moves. A couple change their financial priorities. They get out of debt. They begin to give, begin to live generously. A man says to me, I looked in the mirror after my third scotch one night, and I said, I don't want to live this way. And, and he joined AA and became sober. Man with an anger problem deals with it. Couple with an intimacy problem, they, they deal with it. A man who feels like he's, he's been never moved. He's been unteachable his whole life. Suddenly he says, man, I see that my heart has grown hard. I don't want a hard heart. I want to move. That's progress. People dealing with race issues. People dealing with their relationship with food. Relationship with Immigrants. Relationship with enemies, relationship with people different than us, relationship with people we just don't like, work priorities. Do you understand? God wants to change everything about you, everything. Like spirit, soul, mind, will, emotions, body, sexuality, marriage, family, singleness, friends, neighbors, the city, the nation, the environment, the cosmos. And this is in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 10, and 11 says this, The end of history looks like this. Every molecule in the universe saturated with God's glory. So the whole universe is kind of this living vibration of joy and mercy and healing and hospitality and life, and you are like the prequel to that end. So start living as people of hope. That's what the, the Bible's all about. That's Christianity, or should be anyway. So we need to say it over and over again. God has this vision to display through you stuff that is beyond what you could even ask or hope or imagine. That's Ephesians 3.20. Like God wants to use you in a cool way. But then, don't settle for less than that. Don't settle. Like if you play football and you made it to the 34 yard line, it's no good saying, hey, we like it here. I love the 34 yard line. Let's just stay here for a while, right? And, and uh, you know, we're not gonna move the ball anymore because it's risky and it's actually kind of hard work. You gotta block people and people fall over and it get sweaty. No, we're, just, we're gonna build a campfire on the 34. You can't do it. You have three tries and then you lose a ball or four, whatever. Like, if you're going to climb Rainier, you don't stop at 12,000 feet and say, hey, this is cool. Oh, great. Uh, You could, but I don't want to climb with you if that's who you are. (laughs) I want somebody whose goal is like the summit, do you understand? Who doesn't want to settle for less, because you can't can't live at 12,000 feet. You can't live at a 34-yard line. You either ascend or descend, you either make a first down or you punt. But we live with the delusion spiritually that we can settle, that somehow we settle into this life, yeah, it's a commute, it's 40 hours or 50 or 60, we work, we pay our debts, we save some money, we have some fun on the weekends, and we call it a life, And we lose sight of the fact that if we're not moving forward in this intentional life of displaying the character of Christ, creating a culture of hope, if we're not moving forward, we're actually losing yardage. We're actually drifting down the mountain. So every one of us need to ask this question. How am I stewarding my life with God? How am I I stewarding my body, my money, my sexuality, my relationships? And the question should not be, am I getting by? That's not the goal, to get by. The goal is to move forward. So, to the extent that we're aware of shortcomings and we're like this, oh, I see in my life, yes, my sexuality, I need to move forward. Or my, my, my relationship with money, my body image, my relationship with my parents, my relationship with my children, with my neighbors, my my anxiety issue, whatever it is. I must, I want to move. That look, if you want to move, that's a good thing. But if all I hear from you is, I'm good. It's everybody else who has the problems. That's a problem. How do you want to move? And if you can't answer that question, I hope by the end of the day you can. Because all of us should see ourselves as on a journey, not generically, but specifically. Like we're moving in particular ways. So, it's a good thing when you see your need for movement. But here's the thing. Let's pretend for a moment you see your need for movement, and you're going to move, As soon as you decide to move, movement is always contested. That's the second point. So what God wants, second point, is always contested. So if you look at verses 11 and 12, this is how it's articulated. Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but rulers, powers, World forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So take up the armor so that you can stand, so that you can resist the enemy. So if God has a team and the church is God's team, it's vital to recognize that there's an opposing team. Does anybody watch the World Cup this week? Anybody watch any of that? So if you're a fan of soccer, you know that uh, it's like... Hardly anybody scores, and that's why some of you hate soccer. I understand that. (laughs) Nil, nil, it was amazing. And I go, really? Uh, Whatever. Okay. But the only reason that it's a battle is because there are two teams. I mean, if this was the World Cup and only one team shows up, it doesn't matter how bad that team is, they will win. Does that make sense? Like a group of four-year-olds could win the World Cup if there were no opposing teams. Because eventually, by accident, one of them is going to kick the ball into the goal. And then that's it. They win. They win. This is the way it works. An opposing team is what makes it a battle. And so what Paul is saying here is be mindful. If I'm going to deal with my body image or my relationship with my neighbors Or, or my my uh, anger problem, or my drinking problem, or my pride, or my insecurity. If I'm going to deal with that, it will be contested. That's this text. So you don't just walk down the field. Every yard, if it's football, every yard is contested. And and you get in the red zone. It's even more difficult than the previous 80 yards. The last 20 are the hardest yards. And you you know then you get all the way to the two. And it's third down, and you pass. (laughs) And you lose your faith because of it. You understand understand what I'm saying, right? So, I want you to see here, no one sets out to lose. No one says, you know, I'm just going to live a life of complacency and lukewarmness. No no one does that. Like, we, we end up settling... Because we drift from our calling, and particularly, uh, we drift away and become vulnerable to the covert strategies of the enemy that causes us to build a campfire on the 34-yard line. And, And we're like, we're done growing, and our life stagnates, and we think we're staying there. We're not actually. We're drifting. So the reality here that Paul is trying to articulate is A, be intent on nothing, settle for nothing less than the fullness of God's will for your life in every area. B, know that if that's your intent, your progress will be contested. There is an enemy. And the enemy's been there since the beginning and the enemy's job description, according to Jesus in John chapter 10, is to lie, steal, kill, and destroy. So somebody is intent on your undoing. Satan is the, is the source of all shame, division, alienation, betrayal, self-hatred, pride, lust, fear, greed, complacency, cynicism. Like if you go upstream from your cynicism, uh, you'll find at the headwaters Satan, always. At, at the headwaters of all this stuff, it's, it's you're in a battle. And Second Corinthians chapter 10 says that not only in a battle, not only are you in a battle, but the en- your enemy is not flesh and blood, but p- like, like these principalities and powers that we'll talk about in a minute. So, your enemy is not flesh and blood. So, don't, hey, your enemy's not uh, uh, the president or the Democrats or a particular party. That's not your enemy. Get over it. Your capacity to shine as light is not contingent on who's in power. That's novel. Your capacity to shine as light is, is available to you, and the thing that's preventing you is not like a, a world system, but a spiritual system that you have power over in Christ. So we, we should spend less time obsessing about who's in power at work, who's in power downtown, who's in power in Olympia, who's in power in D.C., and more time determining that no matter who's in power, our calling collectively is to shine his light. That's the way it works. So the text in Ephesians shows us that there's this enemy preventing us from shining his light, and this enemy carries different names in the Bible. And in in this text, the enemy is called rulers, powers, world forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, The best way to explain that in a short amount of time is to say that these forces function in kind of two different ways. One, these forces afflict us as individuals. And when you look at the Bible, you find people who are like oppressed by demons and possessed by demons, right? You see it in the Bible. Matthew 8 is an example of a guy who's demon-possessed, and Jesus goes, he casts a demon out. And there are people oppressed and possessed, and when people are afflicted personally, when we're afflicted personally by demons, it's like we've allowed Satan to gain access to some part of our soul, and now, though we love God, we hate our body. Though we love God, we got a terrible anger problem. Though we love God, we're so fearful of the future that we're hoarding our money. Though we love God, whatever. Do you understand? Like that's oppression and we gotta deal with it. So that's, that's a thing. But then also it's true in the Bible that there are these things called uh, uh, world forces of darkness. Like, uh, these are powers that, that are kind of controlling uh, systems in, in the world. And uh, I don't, the best way to explain it is to refer you to for your own reading to Daniel 10 sometime. Daniel had received a vision, uh, a dream, and it was super confusing to him, so he prays for understanding, and an angel is sent to give the answer to Daniel. Have you guys heard this story before? So the angel is sent to give the answer, and then when the angel comes, I'm paraphrasing, but Daniel basically says to the angel, what took you so long like, I've been, I prayed, I've been praying for three weeks and now you're just coming with the answer. What took you so long? And the, the angel says, well, I wanted to come directly to you, but I had to go fight a battle with the prince of Persia. What is that about, right? That's weird stuff. So uh, what, what it gives us an insight to is this reality that uh, all... I began this, this uh, sermon with this quote about culture. Every system has a culture. This married couple in the second row, there, there's a culture in their home. And if you went to their home, you'd learn their culture, right? Are they hospitable inhospitable? Are they generous or are they greedy? Every, my family is the same. Your family is the same. Every family is a culture. Every, every business is a culture. Amazon is a culture. Every work team is a culture. Every, every political entity creates a culture. So there's all these cultures that we see. Uh, And and when these cultures are controlled by darkness, they become strongholds. Uh, That's a technical term in the Bible. In other words, like this, this, this culture now has become a system of dominating and it's a very destructive thing that's happening. And so, for example, there are places in the world where certain sins are... Uh, like a pandemic, and they're deeply entrenched. If you travel to, to Thailand, human trafficking and sexual slavery is gigantic. It's a stronghold. Racism in America, a stronghold. Nazism in Germany, 1930, a stronghold. Violence in America, a stronghold. Materialism in many parts of the world, but particularly New York, London, financial centers, a stronghold. So every person Every family, every institution has a has a has a culture, and when the culture is controlled by darkness, it's a stronghold. Amazon has a culture. Boeing has a culture. Starbucks has a culture. Your apartment complex has a culture. Your neighborhood has a culture. Green Lake has a culture. Bagley has a culture. Aurora has a culture. Young Life has a culture. This church has a culture. And every system has the potential to be redemptive or destructive. Every system. And every system is some blend of redemption and destruction. But our goal as Christ followers is to allow the light to begin to permeate every system wherever God has placed us. So if you're at work, listen, you're, you're there to shine His light to be a redemptive force in a culture. The, the, the forces that have been most redemptive throughout all history in, in transforming cultures have been uh, God's people. That's just the truth. I mean, if you look back at history, you go, wow, why is like, the end of slavery, where'd that, ha- where'd that come from? The church. Propagation of hospitals throughout uh, the developing world. The church... Development of leprosoriums to care for people who no one would even touch. The church, same thing with HIV and AIDS in Africa. The church, halfway houses. The church, savings clubs in Rwanda. The church, wells in Africa. The church, prison reform, addiction treatment. The care for kind of all kinds of people on the margins. Care for immigrants, legal immigrants, illegal immigrants. The church, the church, Always. Is the church flawed? Absolutely. Has the church often failed to adequately engage the powers? Yes. And when the church fails to engage the powers of darkness, we become complicit in racism and slavery and sexism and and, anti-Semitism and apartheid and materialism and environmental destruction. Yes, we've been complicit, but also we've been this force of light, and that's the point. What will we be? Bethany, complicit or a force of light? That's the question. And complacency will cause us to be complicit in darkness. Because in many of these strongholds, the, the the darkness is perpetuated precisely because the church has had a blind spot. And if you look at, like, Germany in the 30s, that was exactly what happened. The church was blind to the anti-Semitism and nationalism that were rapidly rising as idols and in the church's blindness the church became complicit and it's actually more dangerous to have a blind spot than to be blind does that make sense like if i'm blind i like i know i need you to help me down these stairs i know it but if i just have a blind spot i think i'm going to find my way and now i'm super vulnerable In my blind spot. This is why in John 9, there's a guy born blind. Jesus heals the guy born blind. And then Jesus says, uh, hey, because this guy knew he was blind, now he sees. But then he speaks to the religious leaders who were critiquing Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And he says, now because you think you see, what? Your blindness remains. Like, there's a blind spot. And you don't even recognize Jesus when he's there. So... Blind spots are very dangerous, and historically, the church has had blind spots. We just have to acknowledge that. That's why the church is, was, has been complicit in all kinds of genocide and, and all kinds of trouble throughout history. So if the church had blind spots in the past, let me ask a question, do you have a blind spot today? Do I? Do we? And it's a rhetorical question, what's the answer? Yes. yes. Come on, what's the answer? Yeah, Yeah, we we have a blind spot. And here's the thing. We don't know what it is. That's why it's a blind spot. Does that make sense too? Like, oh, I know my blind spot. No, you don't. It's a blind spot. (laughs) And until it's revealed to you, you don't know it. And so this is why we pray that God would open our eyes. Because when we have a blind spot, in that particular blind spot... Uh, we've made peace with things that are not normal. Peace with materialism. Peace with credit card debt. Peace with excessive drinking. Peace with just a, just a little porn. No, not a, it's not an addiction. It's just a little bit. Peace, peace with a, a, a marriage without intimacy. No, don't make peace. Allow God to reveal the blind spot. Do you see? So, like how do we do that? Well, there's only one way. You have to put on the armor of God. Have to put on the armor. So, again, our sentence what God wants is always contested, and the result of it being contested, we're strengthened and victorious. We bec- we're strengthened by the reality that we're in a battle. In other words, if we were a soccer team and we're going to go out and pl- we know we're playing three weeks from now. For the World Cup Championship, we know we're playing, and, and then uh, this is what we learned. Oh, guess what? The other team, they've already forfeited, they're not even showing up. That changes our training program dramatically, right? Like whatever, yeah, oh, we're training down at the bar, right? See you there. Pizza, wings, all the beer you can drink. Why? There's no enemy. Like it doesn't even matter anymore, does it? Like we just go in and we will win. Ah, but there actually is an opposing team. So now that changes everything. Now, uh, uh, you know, high interval intensity training, strength training, kicking till you're blue in the foot, right? Like, you just got, you know, now we must fight. We got to train. Why? Because there's, there's, there's an enemy. So the result of Satan's attempts to destroy you is this you're strengthened. Because now you need to appropriate all the resources you have in Christ in a very real way. Like, you need to do this stuff. You need to stand firm. You need to put the the shoes of the gospel of peace on your feet, verse 15. You need to take up the shield of faith, uh, verse 16. You need to take up the helmet of salvation, verse 17, which is the Word of God. You need to pray in the Spirit at all times with all kinds of prayers. You need to be alert. Like, why? Because you're in a battle. Ah, but by virtue of being in the battle... Now, you're paying attention, and that's what you ought to be doing anyway. So when you face the reality of the situation, you find the resources to deal with the situation. And the reality is this. You want to grow in Christ? I hope so. Know this then. There's an enemy. And the enemy is going to cause you to, now you need to fight the battle and take up the cause. And how do you do that? You put on the belt of truth. You put on the shoes of peace. You put on the righteousness of Christ. You put on faith. Why do you need a belt of truth? Here's why. Because Satan's a liar. So if you, like, if you have a body image issue, you need the truth of Christ. That you are loved just, just the way God made you. Like, if you, have, if you have a drinking problem, you need the righteousness of Christ because you need to begin to live differently. I actually need to have a different relationship with alcohol, a different relationship with the opposite sex, a different relationship with the same sex, a different relationship. Like, I need to live differently. I need righteousness in this area. I need truth in this area. I need peace because I have anxiety or insomnia. I need faith because I'm always even doubting this entire thing. So I take up faith. Like, how do you take it up? Here's how. I want to grow, and in, in my desire to grow, I, I ask God to show me particularly where do I need to grow. And maybe in, in your instance, it's a, it, God speaks to you. Oh, it's in this area. It's your sexuality. It's hospitality. It's your treatment of neighbors. It's your relation with money. You need to live more generously. I need to grow. Now, in beginning to live into my calling more fully, bam, I face an enemy. Then what do I do? That's when I put on Christ. Because I want to live generously, I put on Christ. Because I want sexual purity, I put on Christ. And putting on Christ is like the belt of truth and righteousness and peace and faith and, and, and the, you know, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. I, like, I'm putting on Christ so that I can move forward. Because without Christ... I can't. But with Christ, I will. Not I can. I will move forward if I put on Christ. What does that mean, put on Christ? You know, Mother Teresa, uh, if you read her diary, you realize that though outwardly she's serving, blessing, practicing hospitality inwardly, she struggled a great deal with depression and doubts. And so you know what she did every day? You read her diary. Every day she said, whatever, this is who I am inwardly, but God has called me. I'm going to go out and I'm putting on Christ. I'm going to go serve. My first year at Bethany, hardest year of my life. My wife and I had always worked together. We'd moved to the big city. Um, Now uh, she's in a world working. I'm in this world working. This church grew from 300 to 200 in the first year. It was spectacular. (laughs) And I had the feeling that people didn't like me and people didn't like this vision, and I wasn't called here. And why am I here? And why did we give up what we love to do what we did here? And it was very, very difficult. And what do I need to do every day? Every day. I just say, you know what? Whatever. I'm still called. This is where I am. I put on Christ and go out of the battle. I'm going to go. And this is of Mr. Rogers. If you watch his movie, You'll find this quote that's more accurate than I can paraphrase it here, but there's little sections from his diary where he was doubting, like he's doubting. Doubting his calling. Am I making a difference? Am I really serving children the way that I want to? Do people get it? And then for him, I, I believe for him, literally, he'd go to his locker and he'd put on a silly sweater. And that sweater was for him, "This is my mantle. This, this sweater represents my calling. And I'm going to go out. It doesn't matter what I feel. I am called. I have the resources to do it. And I'm, going to, I'm going to do it in Jesus' name. I'm going to go do it. I have a sweater too. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I, I literally, sometimes I put this on, this particular piece of cloth, because my buddy who died in Austria in a paragliding accident gave this to me as a Christmas present. And it reminds me of my calling. And there are, I'll tell you what, there are days I wake up and I don't feel adequate. As a husband, as a dad, as a neighbor, certainly not as a boss, as a preacher, I don't feel adequate. Here's the deal, I'm not adequate. But Christ is. And it was like this is symbolic to me. I'm putting on Christ so that I can move the ball down the field as a boss, as a, as a husband, as a dad, in some particular way, I'm putting on Christ. And then I, then I get out into the, into the world. This is why I don't like summer, because <laughs> I can't wear this. <laughs> Rest of the year, I put it on. How, how is God asking you to move the ball down the field today? That's my question. Oh, no, I'm good. No need. Oh, no, there is a need. Is it your sexuality? Is it your marriage, moving from married to intimate? Is it, is it hospitality for your neighbors? Is it generosity with your money? Is it, is it courage to make a career change? I don't know. What is it for you? Whatever it is, I, this is my prayer, that you would name it right now. Because I need to move... In this area, my money, my body, my because I need to move, I'm putting on Christ. Just do that. And and recognize that in doing that, you're fighting the battle. Because this is how you fight the battle, not with the resources of of your strength, but with all that Christ is. And with all that Christ is, I don't say to you, you might win the battle. I say this, you will win the battle. And by the way, look what you're wearing now. (laughs) Because there's a battle. You're wearing Christ. Father. I pray that we would not uh, allow these words to just kind of roll off of us, but rather that we'd name our battle with money, with our body, with our spouse, uh, with our neighbor, with a person who voted differently than us, whatever, that we'd name our battle. With doubt, and then we put on all that you are. Truth, peace, righteousness. Put on Christ. Thank you for the victory that awaits. Praying this in Christ's name, amen. Let's name our battles, put on Christ as we worship together in closing.